Well, good morning, church. How we doing? Okay, I'll take that. That was much better than what you gave Jeff earlier. Appreciate that. Jeff came off stage and said, I'm glad I'm not preaching today. It's like, great. Awesome. Uh, my name is Peter Anderson. I'm the, I'm the senior pastor here at, at First Baptist Hanford. Uh, we're excited that you're here with us. We're, we're smack dab in the middle of our series as we're walking through uh, Ecclesiastes called Under the Sun. And so if you have your Bibles with you, you can flip open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is where we're going to be at. And we're going to get there uh, in just a second, but go ahead and put your thumb there for a second. Uh, for those of you who, who may be new with us uh, and, or, or maybe just started in this series with us, this book really doesn't shy away from, uh, from what it refers to as, quote, chasing after the wind, right? Futile kind of attempts at different things. It's very upfront with us when it says that everything that man does on this side of eternity is meaningless apart from God. Everything that man does. You can work as hard as you want. You can buy all the things that you want to buy. You can sleep with all the people you want to sleep with, specifically in Solomon's case. But none of it matters in light of eternity. All of it is futile. All of it is chasing after the wind. Now, uh, raise your hand if you're a glasses wearer. Any glasses wearers in here? Yeah, good, good. Uh, I'm supposed to wear glasses anytime that I read or study, but I'm stubborn enough to think that I'm younger than I actually am. And so I'm like, I don't need, I don't need glasses, right? Uh, any, any of you in there? Yeah, good. Couple of you, good, good. <laughs> we can relate to each other. We are aging though, just so you guys are aware. Um, but kind of the, the first time that I got glasses though, and the doctor uh, slid the glasses, or I slid the glasses over my nose, and, and I looked through them. All of a sudden, it was looking like I was, I was looking at high-definition things, right? You don't ever know how bad your vision is until your vision gets corrected with glasses, right? Um, and so, really, what we're going to look at here is, uh, is Solomon and this idea today, this idea of, of a shift in perspective, Because when you need glasses, really nothing in the world has changed, right? The world is still in high definition. The only thing that changes is your your personal perspective on the world. And so today we're going to hopefully take a, a high definition look at what Solomon talks through as wisdom, and today's gonna, it's gonna feel a little bit different. Ecclesiastes feels a little, seven feels a little bit different than the rest of Ecclesiastes because really we're hitting kind of the midway point in the book. And what Solomon does is at this midway point, he takes a second, about 14 verses to look back at everything that he's talked about. And what he does is he kind of gives us a, a proverbial, proverbial type of, type of nuggets for us to hang our hats on. And so today, rather than everything driving towards this one main point that Solomon is trying to make, really what he does is like, do this and don't do this. Or it's better if you do this and you don't do that. It's better if you do this and you don't do, th- don't do that. And so it's going to feel kind of jumbled. It's going to feel a little rocky. And you're going to be like, what's my main takeaway from today? And we'll get to that in a little bit. Okay, but really just know that this is going to feel much different than the rest of it. But perspective is everything. Every decision we make is based on a worldview that reflects our understanding of what is real. Every decision is that we make. One of the, mo- one of the, the best lessons to learn in this sin-contaminated world is how to handle pain and suffering well. 
I, uh, I got an opportunity to go and, and visit Gene um, and, uh, and the family. And man, one of the things I walked out of there and I had a conversation with, uh, with our ladies in the office once I got back here. And I just said, man, Kim Guzman is just unshakable, isn't she? And for those of you who don't know, Kim is, is Gene's daughter. Right. And and I walked in and just had conversations with her and and talked with her a little bit about how things were going and how you're feeling and all this stuff. And and because of her perspective, because of the way in which she views the world, because of the way in which she she understands the world to work, she can see that her dad who is in pain, who is, who is having a difficult time right now, doing his best to get better, right? But still in pain and that sort of thing. Uh, because of her worldview and her understanding that all of this is temporal, all of this will eventually fade away. And even before uh, they, they sedated Gene, even before then, he said, I'm either going to wake up with you guys or I'm going to wake up with Jesus. So this is going to be a good day. Right. And so and so because of their worldview, because of their perspective, this idea of pain and suffering is a whole lot easier to reconcile, a whole lot easier to understand. But all of us have to deal with pain and suffering. Those are certainties in our lives. And all of those things could look different. Maybe it's physical suffering that goes along that goes along with your your body's failing, with our bodies getting sick and dying Maybe, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's the grief of watching a loved one suffer and die. Maybe it's that type of, that type of suffering. Maybe it's problems stemming from, your, stemming from your own sin or other sin against you. The common stress of making a living, wondering how you're going to pay the bills. It may be the emotional suffering from feelings maybe of depression or loneliness or anger or worry or guilt or fear. Wherever it comes from, suffering is inevitable and it's going to happen in our lives. And in these 14 verses, God wants us to see the better side of suffering. The better side of suffering. And it's, it's, it's a shocking kind of perspective because better isn't a word that we use in connection with suffering. But suffering, pain, trials, whatever word it is you want to use, the Bible says are good for us. Those things are good for us. And Ecclesiastes 7, 1 to 14 helps us work through kind of this, this foreign type of perspective. When bad is actually better. And you're going to understand what I mean in a second. But that's the key word in these verses is better. These things are better than other things. Right? Some of the medicine that tastes the worst or hurts the most is actually the best cure oftentimes. It really is better. And Solomon uses the word better seven different times in these lists of verses. His hearers may have thought that he had gone off the deep end with this. Because who in their right mind describes pain and suffering and connects the word better with those things? So we, uh, we get to the midway point of this book, like I said. And, uh, and in order to grasp the importance of the study day, we need to work through a common mistake in our approach to the gospel, right? Gospel, the sharing of the good news. The good news is what gospel literally means. And a typical question in a gospel presentation would be, for any of you who have shared Jesus, a lot of times the question that comes up is, if you were to die today, do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Right. I mean, that's 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 kind of a common thing that people talk through when they're sharing Jesus or sharing the gospel. But there's a major flaw in this approach. 
There's a major flaw in this approach. The, the flaw is who really believes that in even the remotest chance that they are going to die today or tomorrow. Right? Oftentimes, people don't even think about that, especially people in a younger generation, my age. Like if someone came up to me and said, hey, if you were to die today, I'm like, I'm not dying today. So this is an irrelevant conversation. Right? There's a flaw in the way that, that we look at those things. Most people don't think that death is an immediate reality. So for them, it's an irrelevant question. The thinking is, is if Jesus only helps me when I die, then I can get to that later. If Jesus only helps me when I die, I can get to that later. I'm in good health. I'm young. I have lots of time. I'll worry about Jesus when I'm older and I'm thinking about dying. Right? That's kind of the the common understanding. But if instead we were to ask something along the lines of, when you suffer today, when you go through hard times today, how are you going to handle those hard times? How do you handle those hard times? That is all of a sudden a very relevant question to everyone because everyone is suffering. What we've missed is that Jesus isn't just helpful when I'm dying. He's actually essential to us when we're living. And we need to understand those things as we're working through this. He helps me with life, pain, friendships, marriage, money, parenting, work, diet. Jesus is intensely practical to the sum total of your entire life. And Solomon starts hammering through these things. The Bible actually calls it an abundant life, a fulfilled life. Life with Jesus isn't just about beating death. It's not about getting to the end of your life and saying, yep, I made it to the right side of things. I did it. I made it to heaven and everybody else lost. That's not what it's about. It's about living the life fulfilled now. That means you commit your life to Christ and, and you have a better life. And when you die, you also have eternity with him. It's a both and. Jesus gives us purpose. He gives us meaning and power for life now and for the life to come. So as we move through the text this morning, like I said, it's going to feel a little bit like the book of Proverbs. It's going to feel a little bit rocky because uh, it's going to be a bit of the recap of the first six chapters. Tiny little snippets, little nuggets that you can just say, I could plug that into my life. For any of you who have read Proverbs, you're like, uh, read, 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 read. Okay, none of that applies today. Oh, there's the one that applies today. Great, I'm going to apply it to my life, right? This is kind of how this feels. So kicking off, Solomon first tells us that the day we die is better than the day we are born. The day we die is better than the day we are born. Now, disclaimer, <clears throat> that is not meant to say you should rush to death, Okay. No one assume that. No one think, you know what? He's right. Today is the day that is going to be much better than the day that I was born. Please don't. <clears throat> that being said, the day we die is better than the day we were born. He tells us that in Ecclesiastes 7 verses 1 through 4. He says, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. And so back then, people wore ointments, they wore oils or perfume to mask odors, okay? They didn't have indoor plumbing and hot showers, right? We get all upset if we don't have a hot shower, but we still have water that's consistently <laughs> falling on us. So we can walk around not stinky if you're not a junior hire. But they didn't have all like the, if you're in junior high, I love you. Uh, 
They didn't have all the bathroom facilities and deodorants. And, and, and so all of this Solomon's point, though, is don't just cover up. What's most important isn't what you smell like, but what does your reputation smell like? What is it that precedes you? And that reputation really won't be fully known until the last chapter is written and your personal book is closed. You won't know your entire reputation. It's why the day of your death is actually more important than the day of your birth. Man, so many people celebrate babies being born. I don't know if anybody's like upset the day a baby is born. Right? And they're like, oh, this is the best thing ever. Man, so good. And then, and then fast forward. So, so everybody starts out with a clean slate. Every, every baby is perfect and precious, right? Go look at uh, a mom who just had a baby's Instagram account. And she posts a baby and everybody's like, perfect, precious. God created the perfect baby for you. Whatever it is, right? Every baby is perfect ever created. But really, the day that we die, the reason the day that we die is more important than the day that we're born is because we get an opportunity, people get an opportunity to look back on the way that we've lived. And we can say, you know what? I lived a good life. I honored God in my life. I honored God in and among my family, with my friends, at work. I knew Jesus as my personal savior and on and on and on and on. Over the course of our lifetime, your name either increases in value or it loses value. Because I don't know if you ever get more precious than the day that you're born. And so it's either going to increase or lose value. It's based on your reputation. When people hear your name, what do they think of? Your funeral is more important than your birthday party. Looking back on a life well lived is better than looking forward to a life unlived. So what's associated with your name? How are you thought of? How will you be remembered? Will you be kind or will you be cantankerous? Will you be loving or unloving? Will you be patient or impatient? How will people view your life? How will you be remembered? And the wonderful thing is that if today you don't have a good reputation by God's grace, you can change it. But you have to get busy. You have to start moving quickly. And if it's a good one, you must work and persevere that. You have to do that to keep it that way. Psalm is asking us, what do you want in your tombstone? Your death day is better than your birthday because it reveals who you are. And then he continues into verse 3. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. I mean, read that one again. Frustration is better than than laughter. Now, I don't know about you, but when I open up the Bible, I'm like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get my soul fed today. And I read frustration is better than laughter. I want to close that Bible as quickly as I can. I'm like, yeah, I don't know if that's, if that's what God had for me today. But frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Most of us don't like to think about death. Right? It reminds us of the brevity of life, of how little time that we have. Every funeral anticipates our own death. Every time you go to a funeral, you think about, you know, what does my life look like? And you're mourning, and all of a sudden, you know, the people who are dying are getting closer and closer to your age, right? And becomes more and more of reality. Those of us who are here today in light of all who have walked this earth are some of the few people who actually haven't died. 
So we did it, guys. We're here. Congratulations. We're some of the few who are still alive. Have everybody who has walked to this earth. But death is an alarm clock. Death oftentimes wakes us up. We may attempt to live in denial of it, but all of us have an appointment with death. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. None of us are guaranteed the next hour. Solomon says it's wise to prepare for death because facing death prepares us for life. Understanding our end allows us to be prepared for the remainder of time that we have. It's not that we're to go through life with this morbid outlook, but we do need to take it seriously. We need to understand what it is that we're up against. You only have one life to get prepared for eternity. This is it. This is our one shot. You're not coming back as a chameleon or a dandelion, right? Like this is it. You have one life to live, to prepare for eternity. So use that life to be able to impact others, your kids, your friends, your parents. You have one life to use for God's glory. So we need to do it. Look over your schedule this past week. The things that you did this past week. Does it indicate that you're wisely investing your time and wisely investing your life? Or are you throwing your brief life away? And for me, it depends on the day and how many baseball games I have to go to right now, just as an FYI. But we need to ask, what have I done with my life so far? What have I done with my life so far? Solomon kind of reverses our whole value system here. That sorrow is better than laughter. And he's not suggesting we don't laugh. He's not suggesting that we don't enjoy life, right? We talked about that at the end of, uh, the end of chapter six last week, that you get one shot at life, choose joy. He's not suggesting that what he wrote prior to this, we should throw out the window. That's not what he's suggesting at all. He's warning us though, to not live frivolously. You can choose joy and not choose frivolous living. He's saying, don't live a shallow life. And if we do, we're fools. If we do, we're fools. Fools, we go to the bar. Fools, we go clubbing. They sit around wasting time, numbing themselves with entertainment or technology or alcohol or drugs or whatever numbing agent it is that you have. Pinterest, whatever. Everyone is going to die and stand before God at some point. And we need to be prepared for that day. And Solomon is just reminding us of that. And that's why the funeral home is better for us than the comedy club is. Because it reminds us of our brevity of life. Which gets us to our next proverbial statement. Use discernment in your counsel. Use discernment in your counsel. Verses five, and seven, 5 to 7, it says, It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool and a bribe corrupts the heart. Does anybody, uh, does anybody like being complimented? Any, anybody like being complimented? Oh, really? Two of you like being complimented? The rest of you are super just like, no, I'm confident. I don't need your words, whatever. I love being complimented. I pretend like I hate it, but I love it, right? It makes us feel good about ourselves. If someone walks up to me after and is like, hey, good sermon preacher, I'm like, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. I poured a lot of time and energy into that. God's words, not mine, but still I worked on it, 
right? So that feels good. Or man, that haircut looks really nice. Thank you very much. I had nothing to do with it. I paid someone $20 to get it done, but I'll take it because it's on my head, right? We love compliments. People love to be complimented for the most part, or I'm smart, or I'm good looking, or whatever it is, right? Those are fewer and farther between, but still, all of us love to be praised at least at a point, but that's not always what's best for us. That's actually oftentimes not what's best for us. It's the difference between a coach and a fan, right? A fan usually doesn't have the knowledge or skills to help a player improve. If they're enamored with the player, they are just going to gush compliments and miss area, miss areas where that player actually needs improvement in their life. Or, or maybe they suffer from armchair quarterback syndrome, right? Where they sit in their recliner and say, oh, you could do better than that. And they just naysay everything. But really, they have no concept of how to help somebody improve. People can oftentimes always just tell you what you're doing wrong and not help coach you forward. And Solomon includes a key qualifier here. He talks about the rebuke of the wise, the wisdom of the wise. We all need godly, wise friends, godly, wise people who encourage us when we need it and rebuke us when we need it. It's a double-edged sword. Correction is indeed a necessity. And if our lives veer off course and continue in a wrong direction, it can result in a shipwreck of our faith. We can be decimated simply because we don't have the intestinal fortitude to step up to the plate and correct a brother or a sister in Christ when they need correction. Or on the other side, encourage a brother and sister in Christ when they need encouragement. And because of that, God wants every believer to be okay with correction. And oftentimes we don't correct because we're terrified of what somebody's going to say or do back to us, Right? Like, we're ter- like, I'm terrified to walk up to someone and say, hey, you are sinning, and get punched in the face, right? And, and part of it is we're scared because our, our hearts, as, and I think it's a Western culture type of things, as Americans, I can pull myself up by my bootstraps, I'm going to do whatever it is that I need to do, and I can do it best, and I don't need anybody else's help, right? So oftentimes, when someone comes up and says, hey, I think I need to encourage you, I think you need correction in this area, all of a sudden we get defensive, like, no, I got this. You don't, like, you don't need to speak into that area of my life. I got this. Don't worry about it, whatever it is. But we have to be okay with correction. As believers, we have to be okay with correction. And oftentimes, uh, a brother or sister in Christ is off course and doesn't even know it. And God calls us to correct that person in love. And we have to be willing to step up to the plate and do that. And quite often, those wise, kind of mature believers can correct a member of the body uh, whom someone in leadership uh, oftentimes can't, right? There are, there are situations and a lot of situations actually where I can't necessarily come along, I can't come along every single person in the church and help correct each individual person towards their faith. It would be impossible. It would be absolutely impossible. I can't do it, Jeff can't do it, Kyle can't do it. We have people in our lives who we should be that for, sure. But those of you who are, who are wise in their faith, who have, have moved forward in their faith, have years of following Christ under their belt, man, we need you. We need that correction from you. We need that wisdom from you to be able to sharpen the other people who are in our congregation, who are in the body of Christ, the other believers that we have. We need you to be okay doing that. 
And then on the flip side, we need to be okay receiving that correction. I remember uh, when I was in high school, we had a, uh, a vice principal. His name was, uh, we just called him Chavez. I don't know his first name, but his name was Vice Principal Chavez, or we just called him Chavez. Um, that's how he introduced himself. We weren't being rude to him or anything like that. But we just called him, we called him Chavez, and he called me into his office for something. I don't know what I did wrong, but it was something, I'm sure. And so he called me into his office, and we had this conversation about whatever it is, like, hey, you need to stop doing whatever it is that I was doing. And then he leaned in and he looked at me and he said, Peter, I need to know when you're going to stop just being Caleb Medifin's best friend and start stepping up to the plate and being Peter Anderson. It's like, ah, that stung a little bit, right? Because in my mind, I'm doing a good job. Like my friend, he's a good friend. He's a good person, loves Jesus, all that stuff. But really, I was just selling myself short. I wasn't allowing myself to lead in a capacity that, that I could have led specifically when I was in high school. And so here we have this guy who's older. I respect him. He's got some wisdom under his belt. He sees me on a regular basis. We have personal contact with one another. He cares about me. He loves Jesus. And I'm sitting across from a desk room and someone I really, really respect says, hey, you need to look at your life very carefully because you're making choices. Uh, you're, not, you're not making the best choices that you could possibly make. And that's a hard thing to do. And it's a really hard thing to do well. And I walked out of his office and I was furious. And I told all my friends, like, can you believe Chavez would say something like that? And all the while, I'm just like insulting myself, right? I'm like, can you believe Chavez says I'm not a leader? <laughs> like, uh, Peter, shut up, right? <laughs> like, but, but it was hard and it stung. But at the same time, it took me years to be able to recognize that that was a loving rebuke, a man who was for me and wanted to see me do greater things than I was currently doing. So you need to get counsel like that from godly people. It allows us to live a life well if you heed it correctly. And at the same time, it makes it so the conclusion is better than the beginning. The conclusion of your life is better than the beginning, or the end, rather, is just better than the beginning. Ecclesiastes 7, 8 says, The end of a matter, whether it's your life or something else, is better than its beginning. And patience is better than pride. An author once said, Impatience can cause wise people to do foolish things. Like, oh yeah, that's a good, good call. Um, one of the things that, that we had talked about um, at our, uh, our annual business meeting was the idea that we need to rework our constitution, right? There's just some stuff that's dated in there. And with a new vision and a new direction of our church, there's some things that we need to take care of that are in there. And we had said initially, hey, we're going to vote on this on June 2nd was our date to be able to vote on that. And after uh, talking with a bunch of different people and actually asking quite a few people if they wanted to be on the committee to help me revise our constitution and literally every single one of them saying no, like, awesome, God's slamming that door in my face. But then beyond that, recognizing uh, the pulse of our church and how quickly we have undergone quite a bit of change. And I thought to myself, okay, maybe this is an instance for us to be able to flex our patience just a little bit. Maybe this is an opportunity for us to say, you know what, we, we need to slow down because the last thing that I want to do is make a hasty decision. And when hasty decisions are made, and we'll get to that in a second, okay? But the last thing I want to do is make a decision that, uh, that is going to turn me into a fool. 
And so because of that, we've intentionally pumped the brakes. And what we want to do is we want to slowly get to it towards the end of the year and, and make sure we have the right people on board and make sure we go through the right process and have the right meetings and, and have all of our ducks in a row before it is that we actually get to sit down and make a congregational vote on a, uh, on a new governing kind of structure. Right, And so patience, though, is a massive deal. And impatient can cause wise people to do foolish things. Verse 8 is just packed with, with powerful insights like this. Solomon connects pride and impatience together. Patience is actually an aspect of humility. If you are patient, you are humble enough to say, no, we just need to wait. We need to wait. We need to wait. I can't do this yet. We need to wait. We need to wait. So why is it that, that we get impatient? And oftentimes it's because we think that we deserve better. Actually, one, one recent survey found that people with lower income and less education are more patient than those with a college education and a higher income, which I thought was, I thought was fascinating. So in times of adversity, I think I deserve better. I think this shouldn't be happening to me. It's easy to become irritated with others and with God. And so when my, my primary interest is getting what it is that I want from life, it usually ends with impatience because life isn't delivering quickly enough what I think it should, what I think it is that I deserve. And so then I become impatient and self-centeredness and impatience go together, but so do humility and patience. Patience comes from waiting on God's timing rather than being frustrated over the elusiveness of the end of difficulties and trials. Another author said this, second only to suffering, waiting may be the greatest teacher and trainer in godliness, maturity, and genuine spirituality most of us will ever encounter. I've heard numerous times that God answers prayers in a couple different ways. Yes, no, or not yet. And the not yet is the worst answer because you just have to sit in it. You just have to sit in it and wait and wait and wait and wait. And it causes us to become more and more closer and closer to God on a regular basis saying, God, what is it that you have for me? Not yet, not yet, not yet. And we have to develop this patience second only to suffering. And I think that God does this because he's interested in spiritual fruit. He's interested in character development. So he tests our patience to develop perseverance. Paul talks about how our faith is, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So we should, like, we shouldn't be surprised by this. We should actually be okay with this. God is building patience in us so that we'll go the distance in our marriages. We'll go the distance in our ministry. We'll go the distance in our, in our Christian lives. And so patience is how we get there. So we need to recognize that patience gets us to this sweet conclusion and this finale ultimately of our lives. The end of the projects that you're working on is way sweeter than the beginning of your projects. Seeing something through to completion, that goal weight that you want to achieve, way better to, to finish than to start, right? Always way better to finish than to start that. The financial security you need to retire well. All of these things, all these good conclusions require us to have patience. And because of that, we learn to savor the end. And when we do that, it's way better than the outset. And impatience can also lead to anger. In short, anger comes from hasty decisions. Anger comes from hasty decisions. 
Ecclesiastes 7, 9, it says, do not be quickly provoked in your spirit for anger resides in the lap of fools. Verse 9 follows logically on the heels of verse 8. It's foolish to have a meltdown every single time something goes wrong. It's foolish for that to happen. You only harm yourself and you don't improve the situation. Add to that resentment and irritation. Those things are harmful to our bodies. Has, has anyone experienced this firsthand? Like I, this, this, this happens a lot when you walk into a situation halfway through. Or you walk in and you hear half of a story. And all of a sudden you're enraged. You're like, are you kidding me right now? I can't believe they would do something like that. And then all of a sudden you go and you have a conversation with the other half of that instance. And you're like, oh, oh, that makes sense why this, this whole thing happens, right? And it's because it's a hasty decision. It's, it's, it's something that you reacted to rather than taking a second Let's gather all of the information that we currently have. And with that information, let's come to a solid conclusion, right? I wish the media would understand that oftentimes, right? Like, hey, let's get all the information first before we start reporting on something. But it's the same thing in our lives. It's a hasty decision. And the next thing is you move in the direction in which you're looking. You move in the direction you're looking. And this was an interesting one for me. Because I love the idea of looking back and figuring out how when you look back, that can spur you forward, right? But it, what, what he is, Solomon is going to say here in 710, it said, well, I'll just read it. It says, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. I love looking back. I love talking about and, and, and being with my friends from high school. I love, we just celebrated my oldest son had his 10 year old birthday yesterday. I mean, he turned 10 yesterday. Okay. And I love like those memories that pop up on Facebook of like when he was born and like he was three and he was five. And I was like, man, you used to be cute. What happened to you, bro? Uh, like all of those things. I love looking back, right? We, I think we all do to an extent. But what happens is, is that if all you do is look backwards, if all you do is think about how things used to be so much better, you stop moving forwards. If you live back here and you refuse to go to look forward, you're not going to move. Right? Uh, has, has anybody ever tried walking backwards and like going over obstacles? Anybody? No? Okay. When you walk backwards, I don't know if you know this, but you can't see behind you. Right? And eventually what's going to happen is I'm going to run. I didn't plan this beforehand. Uh, so I'm worried I'm going to run into something. But what's going to happen is eventually I'm going to walk so far backwards that I either knock something over and Kyle will be upset at me because it's expensive. Or I'm going to run straight into that back wall back there. Because I have no clue where I'm going because I have no vision. Because I'm not looking in that direction. Now, this isn't saying don't ever look back. Don't ever reminisce. Don't ever talk about the golden years or whatever it is. It's saying don't live there. Be okay looking forward. Live here. Live in the present to be able to look forward. Sure, yeah, you need to look at your rearview mirror every once in a while, right? Because if you're not looking in your rearview mirror, you're, you're not getting a full scope of what it is that's going on around you. But if all we did was look in our rearview mirror as we were driving our cars, we're going to be in trouble pretty quick. We have to be able to look forward on a consistent basis. If you're not looking forward, man, you are going to crash very, very quickly. 
That's why Jesus tells us that, that life with God is like plowing a field and you cannot plow a straight line looking back over your shoulder. Solomon calls us fools. Fools talk about the good old days. This can be through nostalgia when we remember an easier season of our life, like when our kids were little and maybe they were easier for you to keep track of because they're not driving, right? Or maybe they were still in your house and so I can keep track of all my kids and I know that they're going to make the best decisions because I'm making decisions for them. So those are the best decisions, right? Or, and, and now they're out of the house and man, I, I really hope that they have a faith in God or I hope they're leading their families well or whatever it may be. Right? We, we, we tend to think back, and, and that nostalgia, it's not necessarily, like I said, a bad thing. These things can also be traditions, where we just wish that the way things used to be would remain that way. As I'm, I'm at the very front, or very front edge of, uh, of millennials, so I actually remember a time when we did not have a computer in our home. Right? Some of you younger people like Kyle's like, you never had a, you didn't have a computer in your home? Right? I remember dial-up internet. You want to talk about developing patience? Right? Go back to dial-up internet. We had to unplug our phone, take that phone cable, which was really, really long, stretch it across our hallway into the office, plug it into the back of our computer so that we could connect to the internet. And then if someone walked down the hallway and tripped over that line, all that patience just got like tripled because you got disconnected from the internet, right? And I remember those days, and I remember the simplicity of those days. I remember how much easier it was to not have all of the information in the entire world residing in my pocket. I remember how nice it was for people to not be able to get a hold of me whenever they felt like they wanted to get a hold of me, right? I remember how nice and simple those days are. But that being said, I don't want to live those days again. I've lived those days. And I find myself in my present circumstances, and in my present circumstances, I need to recognize that the future is that way. And so I need to adapt to a world in which I find myself now. Adapt to a world where I need to present the gospel to people today, not yesterday. I need to understand that the family that I am raising now is now, not yesterday. It's in a world full of technology and it's in a world full of different types of temptation. It's in a much more complex and difficult world now than it was yesterday. And if I'm consistently looking backwards, I'm not gonna be able to lead my family well forwards. And we need to be okay with that. And that's really what he's trying to get at right here. Winston Churchill said that when the past argues with the present, there can't be a future. Those who are nostalgic about the past, we really don't want to go back there. I don't miss dial-up internet. I don't miss standard definition TVs. I don't. I don't want to go back there. The problem with dwelling in the past is that we whitewash and we sugarcoat it. We think, man, it was so much better back then. And really, if we could go back and live back then for a day, it really probably isn't as beautiful as we thought it was. We're wearing those rose-colored lenses. The problem with thinking things like that is that since the fall in Genesis chapter 3, there have only been days filled with pain and with struggle. And Solomon tells us that. Forward is God's plan for the good days. And the good time really starts when this life ends. Which leads us to our next one is that wisdom actually provides security. Wisdom provides security. 
You know, it's estimated that we spend about $2,000 a year on unplanned emergency expenses. $2,000 a year. The two most common expenses are medical care and car repairs. Last year, in the span of about two and a half months, my wife and I spent almost $5,800 on car repairs. But the good news is, is it was November and December, and we were leading up to Christmas. So it was a great time for all of that stuff to, to go on for our family. But it's hard. It's hard to live without money. It, it actually tells us 7, 11, and 12, it compares wisdom with money. Read it with me. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom pre- uh, preserves those who have it. So he's comparing this idea of wisdom and money. Everybody needs wisdom to be able to, to, to have a shelter. It's a necessary evil. Everybody needs money. But wisdom is much more important even than that. Solomon uses the value of money to get us to see the value of wisdom. It's a good thing. Wisdom is like an inheritance. It's a good thing. And most of us would love if a lot of us just came, or, or if someone came up and just gave us a lot of money right? Here's a check for $100,000, no strings attached. It's my favorite sentence. (laughs) But it's a good thing. Money isn't a bad thing. We would take that money. So money, while it's good, wisdom is actually better. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter. But the advantage of wisdom is this. Wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Money does not. Wisdom preserves the life of its possessor. Money does not. Essentially what Solomon is saying is this. To live a good life, you're going to need two things. Money to pay your bills and wisdom to get you through it. If you get an inheritance, it's a good thing. Money's a shelter. It protects you. Things go bad. Hard days come. Money helps. Wise people know, though, that wisdom is better than money because if you have a lot of money, but you don't have a lot of wisdom, see any Powerball winner, I'm sure, for the last 50 years or as long as the Powerball has been in place, you'll lose all your money and it will actually destroy your life. The Puritan said that God curses his enemies with riches. In the Middle East, where Solomon would have been writing this, you need to be in the shadow to protect yourself from the hot sun. Money and wisdom are insurance from those things. They both help protect you, yet money never lasts. Even if you lose all of your money, you still have wisdom. So wisdom protects you in good times. It protects you in bad times. And honestly, for many of us, prosperity is harder on our spiritual life than adversity is. And you look through the stages where you've grown the most in your Christian faith. I bet you can point to instances in your life that were hard times. I grew the most in my faith when my dad was walking through cancer. Another time of great, great growth in my life was when the Lord called Sarah and I down four hours away from anybody that we knew. Why? Because it's adversity. We have to lean on God. We didn't, have to, like, like, we didn't have to worry about any of these other things. All I had to worry about was specifically like, how I was going to get my family through. And so because of that, there was a, incredible spiritual growth in that adversity. Solomon ties up his treatment on how wise people respond to adversity and prosperity by reminding us that, that God, though, is in complete 
control. God is in complete control. God sovereignly directs both the adversity and the prosperity of our lives. God's over all of it. He's in control of every single piece of it. And God's, like, like though people may not understand and, and even find fault with what God has done, no one can change what God determines. And in 13 and 14, we don't have it on the screen, it says, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. He's made prosperity and adversity. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. God holds it. He's sovereign. He's over all of it. Let me quote C.S. Lewis real quick, and then we'll land the plane, okay? From C.S. Lewis, there's a book he wrote. It's called The Problem of Pain, okay? It's not one of his most famous books, but, but he was the author. It says, we want not so much a father in heaven as we want a grandfather in heaven whose plan for the universe was simply that it might be truly said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed on such lines. But since it's abundantly clear that I don't, and since I have reason to believe nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. So regardless of where it is, regardless, going back to Ecclesiastes 3, of the seasons that we are in life, whatever season it is that we have in life, God is sovereign over all of it. God knows the hardship. He knows the prosperity. He's going to utilize those things in order to grow you towards him. And in order for you to be able to share his word with other people. That's how God uses these different things. When days are bad, when days are good, God made both. God made both. And it all comes from God's hand. And wise people accept that. Wise people understand that. And I'm not saying I'm wise and I fully accepted all this. I don't know about you, but when it comes to trusting God in tough times, I'm a work in progress. I need work in this area. What Solomon is saying is don't think that good days are from Jesus and the bad days aren't. Every day is from Jesus. And you can't bend it back and make it straight if he's made it crooked. If he's made it crooked, that's what we have to endure. That's what we have to walk down. And wisdom will help you navigate through it. Don't get angry. Don't surround yourself with stupid friends who let you sin and never rebuke you. Don't just go eat a lot of food to eat and a lot of beer to drink and have a good time and try to avoid correction. Someone's walking through all these things. We have to learn to be wise and trust God even when we don't understand. Wisdom gives us perspective so that we can trust our Heavenly Father and know that even the bad is better. Even the bad is better. Even knowing Jesus in the midst of the bad is better than not knowing Jesus at all. The bad is better. And that every single piece of it comes from the hand of God. And we have to learn and trust and say that, that God, your God, I know you're good. I know you're powerful. I know you're loving. I trust you even though I don't understand or like some of the things that come from your hand. I trust you and I accept them with what? Joy. I trust you and I accept those things. God doesn't waste sorrow. God doesn't waste adversity. God doesn't waste prosperity. He knows the purpose for which we go through all of these things. 
And we have to trust in the fact that he has a purpose for those things. It's for our good. It's for the good of his kingdom. So people of faith trust God. That's what Solomon is driving all this entire passage is driving back to is God is sovereign. Every single piece of all of this stuff comes from God. So be wise with the hand that you're dealt because you've been dealt that hand for a reason. And sometimes that reason, oftentimes that reason is for you to be able to impact other people for Jesus with the hand that you've been dealt. I didn't understand why my dad passed away when I was 22. Didn't get it. But the amount of times that I've been able to share his story and be able to relate to people and be able to talk to people about things that matter because of the fact that Jesus had him walk through that time, I can't even count. We have to recognize that the hand that we are dealt, we are dealt for a reason. God is sovereign over all of it. We don't understand it at the time, but come the end of our life, when we get to eternity, oftentimes I've heard it said that the first thing that we're going to say when we get to heaven is, oh, because perspective, right? Let's pray, church. Father, thank you for your son. And thank you, man, thank you for Ecclesiastes, Lord. It is a, uh, it has been a fun book to be able to walk through, but it's a hard book and it's challenging and we recognize our futility, but God, uh, it's not, it's not about our futility. It's about your sovereignty. It's about trusting you in the midst of man, things that are just hard and things where we toil and, and we want to do our best, but our best is never going to be good enough. And it can seem like such a downer, but God, we recognize that through it all, it's about you. It's not about us. And that's why I feel like, Lord, it is so hard for us to come to terms with a book like Ecclesiastes that we think it's, man, it's kind of a dark book. It's a downer book. But God, really, it should be an encouragement to all of us. Recognizing that it consistently points back to you. Consistently points back to us honoring you because our lives are futile without you. It's chasing after the wind. And so, God, I pray that we would be wise. I pray that you would give us wisdom to be able to walk through this hand that we've been dealt, that we wouldn't try to make a crooked path straight that you've intended for, to, to be crooked. God, that we trust that you would have a reason for it. And Father, I also pray that uh, if there are people in here who don't yet know you, who, don't yet, who haven't yet put their trust in you, God, I pray that they would just uh, pray alongside of me, the ABCs, that A, that... God, that we would just admit that we're sinners in need of a savior and say, God, I know that I mess up every single day and I admit that to you. B, I would, uh, I would believe that you sent your son to the cross on our behalf to be able to reconcile us to you, not just for eternity, but while we're living here as well, God. And see that we would choose to follow your son every single day, that we would follow his word, that we would heed his call in our lives. So, Father, we love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Hey, real quick as a reminder, if you're interested in serving in VBS, uh, there is a meeting directly after service in the fellowship hall. Outside of that, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.